You are now listening to the June 18th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. program Nearer My God to Thee. When we face hardship, we know that we must seek the Lord. However, when we actually face hardship, do we really seek the Lord? There is a big difference between knowing what to do and actually doing it. To avoid being killed, David was fleeing from King Saul. In fact, he was almost killed several times. Every time that happened, he sought the Lord. At times, when we read the Psalms he wrote, we think he praised the Lord during such times of danger. We can see how he wholeheartedly sought after the Lord. I believe he was able to seek the Lord in such times of danger because he ordinarily had an intimate relationship with the Lord. In this way, we must consistently have an intimate relationship with the Lord to naturally seek the Lord when we face hardship. The person who wrote the lyrics to this hymn had a profound and persistent, intimate relationship with the Lord. Therefore, in a tense moment when his life was in danger, he sought the Lord and wrote a hymnal poem about seeking the Lord. Today, we'll be sharing a hymn written by Charles Wesley called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. First, let's listen to the hymn. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest first verse of the hymn is, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the near waters roll, while the tempest still is high. When Charles Wesley was faced with a fearful situation, it seemed to him as if he was in the midst of rolling waters and a high tempest. It was at that time that he sought the Lord and asked his Savior to embrace him. What kind of situation was he in to express it as waters rolling and the tempest high? What made him ask the Lord to embrace him during that time? We'll find out through a drama. 
Along with his brother John Wesley, Charles Wesley began the Methodist Church and was oppressed by the Church of England. Starting a new revival in a church was a threat to those who dominated the existing power. Oftentimes, those threats were handled with violence, and it threatened lives. In 1740, Charles Wesley was preaching at a parish in Ireland. Even in that region, there were people who opposed the Wesley brothers' new revival. A crowd of people heard that Charles Wesley was preaching to the church members, and they were headed to that place. This is the word from James chapter 2, verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith must surely bear fruit. <sighs> Pastor Charles, something terrible is happening. Hurry and flee from here. A crowd is coming to harm you. Hurry and go through the window and flee to the farm. Charles Wesley, where are you? We clearly asked you to get rid of your doctrine, and yet you're still preaching here? Hurry and come out at once. <sighs> they wouldn't chase me all the way here, right? <sighs> Charles Wesley quickly hid inside a house on a large farm. Jane Moore, the wife of a farmer, saw Charles looking for a place to hide and hid him in a milk storage room. Just as Charles hid himself, the crowd that was looking for him barged into Lady Moore's house. Charles! Are you hiding here? You can't run away from us! Hurry and come out! What is the problem? Did you see the fellow who ran here? Someone said he ran towards this way. He is a very dangerous person. If we don't hurry and drive him out of this country, a terrible thing will happen. Is he such a dangerous person that you chase him with a knife? How frightening. You seem like you're running out of breath. Why don't you come in and have a drink and talk slowly? Oh, thank you. We are looking for a pastor named Charles Wesley. He made a strange doctrine in England and began teaching it. Now I came all the way here to Ireland to spread that strange doctrine. Therefore, we're trying to catch him to protect our people. The people who were looking for Charles would have immediately killed him with a knife if they found him. The fear of death came upon Charles, who heard their angry voices in the milk storage room where he was hiding. Uh, if that lady tells them I'm hiding here, they will kill me with their knife. I still have so much more to do. Will I just die like this? As Charles was shaking in fear of death, he suddenly thought of a Bible verse. It was Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, that said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ah, Lord, that's right. Thank you. While I was shaken in fear, you made me realize that blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Thank you. Lord, please accept me. In this place where I am trapped, I look to you. Lord, please embrace me. While he was hiding in a milk storage room near people who were trying to harm him, Charles thought of the scripture in the book of Matthew and began to pray quietly. Until the crowd that was trying to harm him left, he quietly meditated and came up with a hymn in his mind. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, while nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O oh my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide. Oh, receive my soul at last.
While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide. Till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This verse gave courage to Charles Wesley, who was at this time shaking in fear. It made him look to the Lord in such a situation. If he made even the smallest sound, he would have been found. If the lady who hid him changed her mind and told them where he was hiding, he would have died. In such a situation, more than looking for a way to live, he looked to the Lord. In such an urgent situation, Charles confessed his love towards the Lord and said, Jesus, lover of my soul. The hymn that he wrote would later be sung by many musicians. Among this, four different versions of the song are well known to the church members. This is how greatly this hymn became their own confession. As mentioned earlier, it is only possible to seek the Lord in such a sudden moment of danger when we ordinarily have an intimate relationship with the Lord. Just as David did, Charles Wesley also sought the Lord in a time of danger. Who do you seek in a time of danger? I hope you could look to Jesus whom we love. I'll see you next time from Near My God to Thee. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Meet Cornelius. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. God does surprising things sometimes. And it's surprising the, the people that are invited into the kingdom. Sometimes people you would least expect. Sometimes you think you've got God's work all wrapped up and you know exactly what God is doing. And surprise, really Lord, this is what you want to do? So we're going to start with Acts chapter 10 verse 1. This is a big turning point in the gospel uh, story, in the outreach of the church, because thus far, the church has really done what Jesus asked. It was in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses first in Judea and Samaria, and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost points of the earth. Well, they got the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria covered. But the uttermost parts of the earth, that wasn't happening. In the Jewish mindset, there was a place for Gentiles in heaven. Uh, But they would never be really fully the people of God. So even the church did not have targeted the Gentile world. They were still thinking, well, this is just kind of a fulfillment of our Jewish uh, Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah. And they weren't thinking about taking this message all the way to the world. So this in Acts chapter 10 is uh, the beginning of that turn. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. I want to say right now we're going to spend a little bit of time here because I want you to get to know the place, the person, things like that. Acts 10, 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So who was he? His name is Cornelius. There's nothing special that we can figure out about that name. It's pretty common. Um, It says he was a centurion. Now, the Roman, you heard a Roman legion, right? 5,000 men, 5,000 soldiers. A Roman legion was uh, divided into 10 decades. And so there would be 10 divisions within a legion each uh, division led by a centurion. They were generally the best men that had risen up from 20 to 25 years of service. They were brilliant. They were great military tacticians. And at this point, Cornelius was probably 35 to 40 years old. So he w- I think he's Roman because he is a centurion of the Italian cohort, so most likely he's Roman, probably a Roman citizen, and a very wealthy man. Did you know that a centurion made 15 times 
the salary of a regular soldier. So he was making a lot of money, and the centurion would also have, you know, like a personal assistant who would take care of paperwork and that kind of stuff. Traditionally, uh, we're told they were the best soldiers, became centurions. Listen, they were not chosen for their eagerness to attack, but for preferring death to retreat. So here's Cornelius. We know some more about him, right? He kind of becoming a person to me as I, I was studying about him. And I thought, you know, you're a real guy. You're not just somebody that, uh, you know, is here person on a page. He, uh, that Italian cohort, too, were special archers. There were like 500 uh, elite archers, you know, bone arrow. So he, he was special ops, too. I said he's a centurion. God is so good to centurions in the New Testament. You know that? In several very important occasions, centurions are mentioned. The first one I think about is uh, the centurion who witnessed the ministry of Jesus. He had a servant who was very sick. He had seen Jesus' ministry around Capernaum, which is a town north of the Sea of Galilee. And um, he had sent for Jesus, asking him to heal his servant. People uh, said, okay, we're going to bring Jesus here. And he says, no. He says, Jesus doesn't have to come here. I understand authority. I say the word, and what I say, my orders, they're done. All he has to do is say the word, and my servant will be healed. So their servant was healed, but Jesus said, wow, I have not seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. There is no Jew that has faith like this Gentile centurion. So the first Gentile witnesses Jesus' message, ministry, and wowed Jesus with his faith. The second time that we hear about a centurion in the New Testament is the centurion that is witnessing Jesus' death. And you can look at that in, um, uh, well, I can just tell you, (laughs) at the cross, uh, there was a centurion, he watched Jesus cry out, he watched the, the darkness came upon the face of the earth. He watched as Jesus was dying, he saw that um, Jesus was thirsty, he heard Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He uh, heard Jesus cry out, it is finished. And we're told that that centurion declared, truly, this must be the Son of God. Truly, this must be the Son of God. The first centurion, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. The second is making, having seen Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins, he must be the Son of God. An amazing declaration of faith, frankly, before his disciples were saying that. And then the third time we see 
as centurion in the Bible is right here with Cornelius. And Cornelius is going to be the one that Jesus, in his grace, brings the gospel to, and Cornelius and his whole household is going to be saved. And from that point on, the gospel is going to move forward into the Gentile world. In fact, that whole story is going to take over the book of Acts, the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles and the different missionary troops that way. Well, I want to, it says uh, that he lived in Caesarea. Going back to um, Cornelius, what did he believe? Verse 2 says, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He was what they call a God-fearer. These were Gentile men and women who admired the Jewish religion who turned away from the pagan debauchery, uh, the, the pagan worship of idols and all that went a- around with that. And, um, I mean, pagan gods, the Roman and Greek gods, they were, just, they were just bigger people than us, stronger people than us. I mean, Zeus and Aphrodite, and all, they, they all had illicit relationships. They, they were corrupt, immoral. They, somebody get angry. You had to try to appease the gods with a sacrifice. They were just unpredictable, just like people. The difference with the God that had revealed himself to Israel was he wasn't a person, and he wasn't like anybody you know. He always was, and he always is, and he always will be. He's the one true creator, God, that you can trust because he is consistent, always the same, never changes in character. So this God, this one God, appealed to many Gentiles, and they were called God-fearers unless they converted to uh, Judaism, and they were called proselytes. More women than men became proselytes because in order for the men to become a proselyte, to convert to Judaism, there was a ritual that had to be performed that is supposed to be performed on a baby boy when they're eight days old, not a grown man when he might be 20, 25 years old. So need I say more? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. <laughs> so he feared God with all, in, with all his household, a devout man. Now, how does he live? Look at verse 2. It says, he was a devout man, feared God with all his household, and he gave alms uh, generously to the people, and he prayed to God continually. He was a giving man, alms. That that means giving to the poor, giving to causes uh, that would uh, support the work of God or uh, the cause of God. And so he was the kind of guy that was a giving guy. He was very wealthy, and he shared his wealth. His hold wasn't like this on his wealth, on his money. You know, when you hold your money like this, look, When you hold your money like this, well, first of all, you're not going to end up sharing much of it because you're afraid you're going to lose some. But you you know what else happens? Is you're not going to get more blessing from God unless your hand is open to that blessing, right? 
And so you give and you receive. You can't outgive God. There were other wealthy uh, God-fearers, and I think of another. He was a centurion I talked about a little earlier in Luke chapter 7, whose uh, slave uh, servant was sick and healed. And when the Jewish leaders came uh, to Jesus asking for him to heal this servant, they were trying to uh, pump up the centurion's uh, character before Jesus. Like, you ought to do this for him, Jesus, because he's so good. But this is what they did mention. They said, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So that synagogue in Capernaum, which you can go to now, it's built, the one that we, we see now was built upon the one that this centurion built. You can see it, and I just wonder what it cost. I tried to go online and find out how much it costs to build an ancient house or something. I, I tried to find out. I couldn't, but I, my guess would be if we could translate into modern day figures, how much does it cost to build a church? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, but let's say, you know, it was a very simple thing. I, a million bucks, guys. I mean, it's more than you think. 500 grand. I mean, that's not much. This centurion that Jesus says has more faith than anybody in Israel, he built a synagogue for the Jews. Now we're told that Cornelius was that same kind of guy. And quite possibly might have built this synagogue that you can see just a few remains of in Caesarea. We went there, we had to kind of crawl through the weeds. It was before it became um, a national park. So we had to, that grass you see was, you know, like this high. We were crawling through that and there was barbed wire crawling over that. I don't know if that was legal or not. I don't know why there was barbed wire there. Come on. So we went over that and we stood on there and what you see is some beautiful tile work and that's about all right now uh, that survived. But I'm thinking, as we stood there, that might have been the synagogue that Cornelius built. If he did, the tile work is spectacular. I mean, that would have cost some money, not just a floor. But we're looking at a beautiful building. So possibly we were standing on the very synagogue that Cornelius built for the Jews uh, because he was that kind of a generous man. So what happens next? Verses 3 and 4. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Now, as we've said before, it seems to be that every time a human being sees an angel, they freak out, and the angel has to say, calm down, everything's cool, right? It's almost always that happens in the scripture. And when people talk about seeing angels, you know, the people say, oh yeah, I saw an angel, and we shook hands and sat down and had coffee together. I don't believe it. 
I think the real deal is you kind of have this sense of a holy, holy terror come over you. It's like you're scared. Who is this? What you sense? And, all. and so he had the exact experience that so many others had in the scripture. Cornelius, he's staring him in terror, and he said, what is it? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God remembers our prayers, and God remembers what we give. Jesus sat and watched how people gave, didn't he? The Bible says he went to the temple and he watched how people gave. He saw how some religious leaders came and they, they say this big offering um, container that Jesus was watching was shaped uh, so that the neck was narrower and it was long neck and then it went uh, wider at the bottom. And when you threw a coin in there, it made a lot of noise as it went down. And so the wealthy would take and, and instead of you know, putting in a, one gold piece, they'd have it broken down into pennies you know, and, and it just made you know, clatter as all the money went down. Jesus was watching that. Okay, well, uh, they got the reward. Everybody saw them. Okay. Very nice. Then he saw this widow come, and she gave nothing. I mean, I don't mean nothing, but compared to them, it was just nothing. A mite, which was the smallest coin that you could give. And Jesus says, right there, you see that? She gave more than all of these people. Because she was giving out of what it took to live. She was giving sacrificially. Jesus watched the giving. I think of that sometimes. I think, well, Lord, this is cool that that you're watching this. It doesn't go unnoticed by the Lord. As you give to God, he remembers. And that's why God will bless you. God remembers. He's not going to forget that. Now, what time is it in in this incident? What does it say the time is? The ninth hour. Why even is the time mentioned? This, I'm going to say this was a ninth hour event. Man, when I was studying this, I just, I, I just went over the top. I was so excited that I can hardly wait to get here and share this with you. The ninth hour seems to be a special time in the progress of the gospel. This is what I found. There are four very significant events that stand out in the progress of the gospel story that happen at the ninth hour. You ready? Well, three decades before this event, three decades before Cornelius's uh, vision, a priest named Zechariah was chosen to burn incense by the Lord. It's probably like more than like four decades. Interesting that the time of burning the incense was the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. So he was going into the temple. It was his turn to go and burn incense on the altar. Let me tell you how that worked, too. There was a special top-secret brand of incense, an incense blend that God had given his people and you weren't supposed to reproduce it. If you did, it was penalty of death. Oh, you know, that's a 
special recipe right there. So they would take to be able to burn incense on this altar that was inside the temple. They would take one of the burning coals from the the, uh, altar where the big sacrifices were offered all day long. They would take one of those coals, they bring it into the temple, they put it on the altar, and then they would sprinkle the incense. How many of you have smelled incense before? Yeah, I almost brought some in, but sometimes Protestants start coughing. <coughs> it's like the Catholics, people with a Catholic background, they're looking at, what's the matter with you? Protestants are coughing. It's like, please, come on. So, um, <laughs> the incense... Uh, smelled beautiful. And the incense was offered up to God on, uh, through the burning coal of sacrifice. Now, the Bible says that our prayers arise to God like incense. Psalm, look at Psalm 141. Keep your place. Now, don't lose your place. But Psalm 141, uh, David says in verse 2, David says that very thing. He's using the analogy of of our prayers to the incense offered there in the temple. And at 141.2, David said, Let my prayers become counted as what? Incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. David understood that behind these acts of the priest offering the incense and the offering of the very important sacrifice every evening at the temple, behind that was a heart-filled worship. May my, my prayers be like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. You know, there is a biblical precedent for lifting our hands as we pray and worship. When In the Old Testament times, the people would praise God. They would lift their hands. Why? Because when you lift your hands, you're showing, first of all, praise. Somebody's going to watch the Super Bowl. And you're not just going to sit there and go, oh, wow. (laughs) Yay, yay. Go team. Some of you are going to turn into crazy people, aren't you? Isn't that what we do? Let's do the all right. All right. That's how. All right. Nobody does that, right? Yeah. Well, see, when we're praising the Lord, we lift our hands in worship. That's what they did in the Bible. They lifted their hands in worship. They lifted their hands in praise. Now, I remember how weird it was the first time I lifted my hands in worship. I was taught, and some of us have come in and we see people doing that and we're going, whoa, and I'm standing next to one of them. You know, that's what you're thinking. Or their hands are in the way. I can't see the screen. Something like that, right? (laughs) So when I walked in, I was taught that if you lifted your hands, it was like demon possession. That's what I was taught, truly. And so this whole lifting of hands in worship seemed very awkward and embarrassing, Really embarrassing. Hey, my guy, I see these other people lifting their hands. It just seems, ah. Uh. And yet I understood 
what was behind this act of lifting my hands in praise and worship to God. And I was self-conscious. What are people going to think? Is anybody going to notice me? Oh, I don't know. And so I really felt God just convicting me. Come on, Mark. Come on, you can do this. And so I closed my eyes so no one could see me. And... I thought that for some crazy reason. I'll just close my eyes. No one will see me. And I lifted my hands in worship the first time. Do you know that Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, says, he says, I would that men pray with uplifted hands. He even says that, hey, we ought to pray with our hands uplifted to the Lord. So there is a reason that our hands are lifted in worship. I'm getting a little sidetracked. Is this okay? You know, we're just kind of going around here, and obviously we're not going to get to the point of (laughs) Acts chapter 10 today, but there's still ground to cover. So uh, the, the, the incense that is being offered represents the prayers of God's people. May my prayers go up like incense. See, our prayers, I told you, that incense was lit by a living coal that came out of where the sacrifice occurred. And our prayers can be offered to God because of the living sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who makes my prayers efficient. Jesus is the one who brings my prayers to God. Jesus is the one who offers intercession for us. Jesus is the one who answers prayer. Amen? It's all through Jesus and his work. In the book of Revelation, we're told that our prayers are as incense. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. Let's look at 5, verse 8. There's something cool about prayer. And we're kind of in the midst of of things that are going on here in heaven. but, But I want us to see how there is a point made about prayer. And look at verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and, read with me, golden bowls full of incense, which are the what? Prayers of the saints. Now I want you to uh, look at chapter 8 and just look at 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the what? Prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. See, our prayers, we're saints, remember? Our prayers go up before God and in a spiritual way, are collected by God. During this time, it's during, uh, it's the prayers of the saints, and I believe at this time in the book of Revelation, the prayers that have been captured by God are the prayers that have been prayed for 2,000 years, where the saints have prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, this is a tribulation, all our prayers. 
Lord, throughout the years, the, Lord, the church has prayed, Lord, bring your kingdom to earth. And now the Lord's about to do that. And all these prayers have been gathered and they're going to be, that have been offered to the Lord and they will be poured out. The answer will be poured out. God collects your prayers. My prayers aren't answered all the time, immediately. But I understand that no prayer just goes by God and he says, well, not that one. Well, not that one. Not that one. Oh, I'll catch this one. Do you understand that God receives them all and God answers them all? You remember, yes, no, maybe, and you've got to be kidding. Those are the answers to God through our prayers. But he will answer them all in his time according to his will. Amen. They're gathered, and our prayers are like sweet incense. And our prayers ascend that way because of Jesus. He is our righteousness. He is that good-smelling incense. You know, some people wear a cologne, and you begin to identify them by their cologne. You know, oh, I've talked for God. He must, he's got to be close because he walked by because I, I can smell his cologne. And I'm the kind of person that if you hug me and you have a cologne on, and if you were to touch my skin, I will smell like you for the rest of the day. I pick up, I can walk by somebody smoking, just walk, and I smell like I smoked. I, everything I pick up, you know. Well, that's cool, because if I've been around Jesus, his cologne, so to speak, his precious aroma of his sacrifice and his covering life, it's on me. And we want the world to smell that and not smell us. Amen not smell us. I don't know how it is for uh, not smell us. I didn't expect to stop here, so I don't have a clever ending. <laughs> okay, let's all of us pray, and those of you online, don't. I just want to say to you, I've been thinking about you. I forgot to say something at the very beginning, And I'm so glad that you're online and that you're watching. And if you can't get here, uh, I understand. If there's a way that you guys feel comfortable coming back, we miss you for sure. So as soon as you can, come on back and worship with us. Okay, let's pray right now. Father, we do thank you for your word and the things that we learn. And as, as today, it just many things have come on the table. And... You teach us, you build us up through your word, and we're thankful for that. And you've spoken to our hearts, and you convicted us of something. Uh, Of course, that means nothing unless we move forward with with what you've asked us to do. Help us not to just be, be people who hear the word but don't really receive it. It goes in one ear and out the other. Lord, we don't want that to happen now. We pray this in our Lord's Jesus Christ's name. And everybody said, Amen.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Today's Christian evangelical culture, the term ministry is often mentioned. You hear the term ministry all the time. People are in different ministries. And I did a search on the internet for the term ministry, and I got 102 million hits. There's a lot of ministries out there. There's a lot of talk about ministry out there. Indeed, many churches have many different ministries. And have you noticed, many churches have a ministry that seems to fit every area of life. Have you noticed how there are churches that have ministries for singles, for divorced people, for adults, for small groups, inner city ministries, parachurch ministries, financial ministries, family ministries, music ministries, youth ministries. There's all kinds of ministries in churches. It's not that ministries within themselves are wrong, but ultimately we're seeing a focus on ministry in the church. And for that reason, we need to understand what true biblical ministry looks like. You know, the term ministry or minister comes from the word deacon, which means to serve. These are opportunities for the body of Christ to serve one another. But lately we've seen, I think, in many cases, a movement towards ministry, which I believe is unbiblical. Ministries centered around the needs of people based on man's wisdom rather than centered around the word of God based on God's wisdom. It seems as though we are living in the same context as those in the book of Judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, how do we know if a ministry is biblical? How do we know if a church is biblical? How do we know if ministries that we are involved at are biblical? How do we know if Bible studies we are in are biblical? What does genuine, true ministry look like? And I believe today we're going to see from Paul's example in this introduction, as he describes himself as a minister, ultimately, what true ministry looks like. So would you turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Now before we get into the text, I want to remind you of the context. The writer identifies himself as the Apostle Paul, and he is writing to Titus, his true child, in a common faith. It's evident that the Apostle Paul has won Titus to faith. It's apparent that Titus from Galatians chapter 2 was a Greek, and we don't know when the Apostle Paul led him to faith, but sometime after that he brought him along on some of his journeys. And it's evident that the Apostle Paul was very close to Titus. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13 he calls him his brother, obviously in Christ. And in chapter 8 Paul calls Titus, 2 Corinthians 8, my partner and fellow worker among you. And if you read 2 Corinthians, you see a picture of Titus. He was a faithful man who served the Lord under the direction of the Apostle Paul. Now, why would the Apostle Paul be writing Titus? I've shared that verse 5 reveals some of the reasons. He says in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete. Obviously, Paul and Titus had traveled to Crete, and then he left him in Crete. And our text reveals, I believe, four reasons why Paul writes this letter to Titus. First of all, there was a lack of leadership in the churches on Crete. Verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That leads ultimately to the first reason here, that there was a lack of leadership. 
and the Apostle Paul told Titus to appoint leaders or elders in every city, elders plural. Secondly, we see in chapter 1 that there were false teachers, most likely Jewish Gnostics, who were upsetting whole households or whole churches. And elders, godly elders, need to, as we will see, Lord willing, next week, to exhort and refute in sound doctrine those who contradict. And also we saw that these same bad false teachers were also relaying things and speaking things they shouldn't say and they should be silenced. And they were, as Paul would say, worthless for any good deed. And in chapter 3 we see that there were also factious men among, that Paul exhorts Titus to reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that they are perverted and sinning. And thirdly, we see Paul addresses Christian behavior, Christian conduct in chapter 2. Older men, older women, younger women, young men, and slaves. All based on the fact that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live righteously and uprightly in this present evil age. And lastly, if you read through the book of Titus, three short chapters, you will see that there is an overwhelming theme throughout the book that believers are exhorted to good deeds. The false teachers are worthless for any good deed, but believers are exhorted to good deeds, good deeds that are a manifestation of the life of Christ in the true believer. So with that in mind, let's take a look again at this initial greeting in the book of Titus. I'll start in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Savior. Now in your bulletins you have an outline. You can use it for however you please. If it's helpful, great. If not, you can just toss it. But ultimately, I believe we're going to see today as we look at this passage what genuine ministry looks like. And first of all, as we've seen in the last two weeks, genuine ministry or true ministry or sincere ministry, ministry without a mask, ministry without hypocrisy, ministry that is true and genuine, involves a genuine minister, involves genuine servants. Pretty simple. To have genuine ministry, you need genuine people who are genuinely following the Lord and genuinely submitted to Him. In the New Testament, Paul uses the term to speak of sincere or genuine as without wax. In those days, people would put wax in the cracks of pots and they would try to sell them at the marketplace and someone would hold them up to the sun and if they saw light coming through, they had wax. They were not genuine but genuine servants like the Apostle Paul are without wax, authentic, sincere, non-hypocritical. And we saw last week that real ministry involves a real minister or servant who first of all knows his or her position or calling in Christ. We saw that the Apostle Paul was a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God. We looked at that in depth, that Paul was a doulos. He was a slave to the living God. He was held over to do God's will. He was the slave. God was the master. And we saw that there's two possibilities for everyone. We are either going to be slaves to sin. We're going to offer ourselves to sin. Or we're going to offer ourselves as instruments of obedience and righteousness to God. A good master. A gracious master. And true believers are slaves of the living God. And the Apostle Paul also identified himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
He was sent by Christ to bring about his word, as we saw last week, laying the foundation for the church. Ephesians chapter 2, the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets who brought about the faith once for all delivered to the saints in which the church is being built up on. That we are born again by the living and abiding word of God. God uses his word to bring about new birth. That in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of God. And he also uses that same word to make us more like Christ to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it's his word that performs its work in us. Paul was an apostle, and we saw last week, for the faith of the chosen, for the faith of those that God has chosen. It is Paul's apostleship that brought about the word of God, which brings about our faith in God. And he also said the true knowledge, and we looked at that, The true knowledge ultimately pointed to the true knowledge as we see in Scripture, the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is faith via the Word that brings about the true understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul was an apostle, for those reasons, to bring those things about. Paul understood his position, his calling, and his purpose in Christ. And folks, our churches these days, and we are tempted to, are plagued with people who are their own lords who serve Christ their way rather than what God has revealed in his word. And praise God that the Apostle Paul was faithful, that he fought the good fight, and we have his example in Scripture. Well, what do you call a child who doesn't obey his parents? A rebellious child, right? If you have a child who consistently, habitually disobeys their parents, that is a rebellious child. And folks, when those who call Jesus their Lord continually, habitually disobey him concerning ministry, They are rebellious. Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? But I believe we're going to see today in Scripture here that genuine ministry involves a genuine minister, again now, here who is motivated by his or her hope in Christ. And the Apostle Paul, as we'll see in verse 3, was motivated by the eternal life that God had promised him. Verse 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God, or we saw last week on behalf of or for the purpose of the faith of those chosen of God, and on behalf of or for the purpose of the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, brings about godliness. Now in verse 2 we have a third statement. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now we have three statements that are based on Paul's apostleship. First of all, he was an apostle for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to Godless. And then his apostleship here also is connected to this phrase, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ago. Now the question here for us is, what does he mean by in the hope of eternal life? What does he mean by that? The term translated in here is not your normal Greek preposition n, but it is a Greek preposition epi with the dative. And you say, well, what does all that mean? Ultimately, this preposition speaks of being on, on something. But with this dative case, it can mean a whole bunch of different things. It can mean on, at, in, with, by, near, over, to, for, because of, or on the basis of. There's a whole bunch of possibilities of what this preposition could mean. Now, I believe in context what he is saying here, and most scholars believe this is the case, that he is saying that he is an apostle on the basis of the hope of eternal life. 
You're saying, I still don't understand. Paul was an apostle on the basis of the hope of the eternal life or in reference to eternal life, the hope of eternal life. You're saying, what do you mean by that? Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of the chosen and the knowledge of the truth in the context of or the basis of the hope of eternal life. All this said, I believe the apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to relate to the reader the motivation behind his apostleship. What motivates Paul in his apostleship? Simply the hope of eternal life. What motivated the Apostle Paul in serving Christ? The hope of eternal life. Now some of you say, maybe, wait a second, Paul was motivated by Christ and the love of Christ, which he says controls him. He was motivated by serving his body, we see that. And those things are true. But I believe once we really understand what eternal life truly is, we'll see that those things are an element of true eternal life. So then Paul was motivated by the hope of eternal life. And you ask the question, well, what is eternal life? We as believers should know what eternal life is, right? We should know what eternal life is. And yet sometimes we have this view where we really don't understand what eternal life is. Well, what is eternal life? If someone was to ask you, what is eternal life? What would you say? The Apostle Paul functioned in the hope of eternal life. What is it? Eternal life is an interesting thing because Scripture says that believers possess it now. We have it. But it also says in some way, shape, or form that we do not possess it completely yet. John 3.36, Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John 6, 47, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, has eternal life. First John 5, 13 these things I have written to you, John writes, who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So Scripture, first of all, reveals that believers in Jesus Christ possess eternal life right now. We presently possess eternal life. But yet our verse, Paul lives in the context of the hope of eternal life. And later on in chapter 3, we see he speaks of the hope of eternal life again. So what is he talking about here? Well, certainly we know that biblical hope isn't something that we see. It's not something that we possess yet. Romans 8, concerning the hope of the redemption of our bodies, the Apostle Paul says this, verse 23, And not only this, but we also ourselves, he's speaking of groaning, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. We groan for God to finish the work. He's redeemed our souls, but our bodies are not redeemed. We have these bodies of sin. We groan for that to happen. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. 
You see, we possess eternal life, but also in some way, shape, or form, we are hoping in this consummation of eternal life, which we don't totally fully have yet or totally fully understand. We possess eternal life, those who believe in Jesus Christ, but in some way we haven't fully entered into that yet. Okay, so we understand that now, but what is eternal life? First of all, I think we need to recognize that God himself is characterized by life. God is characterized by life. Listen to what John says concerning God, specifically concerning God the Son incarnate. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. John 11, as Jesus is addressing Martha, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says to Martha, do you believe this? John 14, 6, very familiar passage. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God is characterized by this very attribute, which is life. He is self-existent, the great I am, the one who is Now, not only is God characterized by life, but it is God alone who imparts life via his word through faith in Christ. 1 John 1.1, what was from the beginning, what we, speaking of the apostles, have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what would be held with our hands, and handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying, we've seen, we've heard it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. And he is speaking of the incarnate Christ. But it is God who imparts life. John 6, 47, as Jesus shares in the Bread of Life discourse, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. You partake of Christ and it brings about, through faith in him, eternal life. John six sixty three. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words concerning himself, he has spoken to you as spirit and life. John 20, verse 31, as John shares the reason why he writes this book. But these things I have written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name, that you may believe he is the Christ, he's the King, the Messiah, and he is the Son of God, he is God incarnate, and in believing you may have life in his name. God imparts life. John 5.37, as Jesus is addressing the Pharisees who search for eternal life in the Word, they think they're going to find it there, but they're not looking for the right thing. John 5.37, And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me, Jesus says. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And you do not have his Word abiding in you, for you do not believe him 
whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. You see, the Jews actually, they actually were almost deifying and worshiping the law ultimately rather than the God of the law. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. God imparts life. God reveals his son in the word and he imparts life. Now another help for us to understand eternal life is what God contrasts eternal life with in Scripture. When we look at what He contrasts life with, we get a better understanding of what eternal life is. In Matthew 25, at the end of the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats at the end of the tribulation, He ends up separating them based on their deeds, based on these deeds ultimately, which would reveal if they had a true relationship with Him. Matthew 25, 31. And notice the contrast between when he shares eternal life and what he contrasts it with. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me, and naked, and did not clothe me, sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. These are Jews in the tribulation who are suffering greatly, and if you had no compassion for them, ultimately Jewish believers, then if you don't have love for his people, then how could the love of God be in you? Then they themselves will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, and a stranger, and naked, and sick, and in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he answered, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these, you did it unto me. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here's a contrast, eternal life and eternal punishment. He 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.